Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the 11th Sunday in Ordinary Time, June 13th, 2021. We return to the heart of Mark's gospel and our Lord's teaching in our episode today, exploring some of his many parables. What becomes quickly evident in our survey of his teaching is that Jesus's words contain a surface profundity in and of themselves, and yet at the same time reveal a depth of meaning that could be sounded for an eternity. Turning to the parables themselves will unveil their subtle allusions to the Old Testament, revealing not only a poetic description of the kingdom of God, but a promise of life should we open our ears to hear. Thank you for tuning in again. We are diving once more into our um, regular readings for the Gospel of Mark. And today we encounter um, what we are pretty used to and familiar with in reading the Gospels, um, a couple parables um, from our Lord. And they are uh, not surprisingly agricultural parables as well. It seems that Jesus had a fondness for nature, unsurprisingly, and uh, loved to draw parallels between nature and the spiritual life. Uh, before we get into our reading from Mark chapter 4 for the 11th Sunday in Ordinary Time, I wanted to take a second to um, remind you or request, I suppose, uh, that if you listen to the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot to me if um, you would be willing to uh, leave a rating and a review. Um, so uh, I, I differentiate the two because if you're not much of a writer and don't feel like leaving comments, you can just hit the stars, hopefully five stars, five out of five, and it'll add a rating to the podcast. But if you're willing to leave a couple sentences of comments about why you might enjoy listening to the podcast, that's helpful as well. So um, you probably have experienced that on Apple Podcasts, um, it uh, will suggest similar podcasts to you. So the more uh, positive ratings a podcast has, uh, the more likely it is to be suggested to other people. And of course, I'd always love um, more people to be able to encounter the Lord's word and uh, fall more in love with him. So if you're willing to, again, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts for the Sunday Dive podcast, it would mean a lot to me. Let's dive into our readings again from Mark chapter four, verses 26 through 34. These are the readings for the 11th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And I will be reading as usual from the Revised Standard Version. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed upon the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should sprout and grow. He knows not how the earth produces of itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. 
he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Mark chapter four, verses 26 through 34. Uh, and uh, these two parables, as I mentioned, agricultural parables. And uh, one of the most famous images, actually, that our Lord brings in in his teachings, this image of the mustard seed we get to explore in our time together. So first of all, when we talk about parables, and I know we've brought this up before, sometimes we'll read um, uh, or the translation will render, the kingdom of God is like, and then we'll get like an object or a person or something. And um, it's not like incorrect to say that Jesus is comparing the kingdom of God to like a man scattering seeds um, or any number of images that he brings up when he preaches parables. However, a better translation is to say the kingdom of God is like this, almost like an ellipses kind of the kingdom of God is like this dot, dot, dot. A man should scatter seed upon the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should sprout and grow. He knows not how. So there's an idea that when our Lord speaks parables, um, he's uh, comparing uh, not just the initial object or um, person, but he's comparing kind of the whole situation. And um, interestingly enough, um, this is, these two parables are the only two parables in Mark's gospel that are explicit kingdom of God parables. So most of the time when our Lord speaks parables, many scholars will um, grant that our Lord is um, comparing these ideas to the kingdom of God or using these ideas to elucidate the kingdom of God. But here in Mark 4, 26 through 34, we get him explicitly saying that the kingdom of God is like this dot, dot, dot. And then he'll go on to say, you know, he'll give the first parable and then he goes on to um, compare the mustard seed explicitly to the kingdom of God. Okay. And keep in mind, and I'm not going to elucidate or, or delve into this idea too much, but keep in mind that for, for me and for many other biblical scholars, the kingdom of God equals the church. All right. And um, we also must realize that the church does not merely encompass, you know, the parishes that we find here on planet Earth um, or merely encompasses um, you and I who are here on Earth, right? Um, the church encompasses uh, both uh, us here on Earth, those in heaven, and actually those in purgatory as well, undergoing um, their preparation to be admitted into the beatific vision. So we have to have that idea in mind um, when we read through the parables. And if we have that idea in mind, when we read through the parables, they will immediately, without even really further explanation, although we'll get into that, they'll immediately take on uh, a resonance that's really profound and uh, deeply helpful for not only our prayer life, but our approach to um, uh, the church and our relationship with others in the church. So let's kind of uh, break into, break down, if you will, 
um, uh, these, these two parables as much as we possibly can. So the kingdom of God is like this. A man should scatter seed upon the ground and should sleep and rise night and day. And the seed should sprout and grow. He knows not how. The earth produces of itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. A quick detail that's not um, necessarily super relevant to our interpretation of the text, but you might notice that our first kind of description of the routine of the man who scatters seed is to sleep and rise night and day. Now that sounds a little awkward to us um, because we would think to say he rises and he sleeps day and night, right? But in this um, this pattern of speech in when sleep in which sleep comes before rising and night comes before day, we get a reminder that Jesus is Jewish and that he's speaking to a Jewish audience and he's steeped in Jewish culture. Why do I say that? Because for the Jews, the day begins at sundown. And so this is why we have this pattern of speech in which, in which the man who scatters sleeps and rises night and day and the seed should sprout and grow, he knows not how. As one biblical commentary on the text points out in the, uh, we get this a little bit in the English, but in the Greek, the conjunction and, which is chi, uh, is just all over the place in these uh, this first verse of our gospel. And it takes on kind of a sing-songy uh, kind of reading to it. The kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed upon the ground and sleeps and rises night and day and the seed should sprout and grow. He knows not how. So it takes on this kind of sing-songy rhythm. And it's interesting because if we imagine our Lord speaking this, this parable, it's as if he's kind of showing the the effort of the man who scatters seed to bring forth fruit. And yet at the same time, the lack of effort, like there's almost a juxtaposition between the the activity and the inactivity. And this is immediately an important idea for us because I would argue and many other commentaries on these scriptures will argue as well that what the parables here are showing for us, they're speaking about things like conversion. They're speaking about things like the growth of the kingdom, which is the church, right? They're speaking about uh, spiritual fruit. And there's this idea in which the man who scatters seed helps to bring forth that fruit. And yet at the same time, there's always this mysterious element to growth. Like, how does it come about? If we continue on at verse 28, it says, the earth produces of itself. The earth produces of itself. In Greek, it's automatos. 
from which we get the word in English automatic, automatos. The earth produces automatos. It produces automatically of itself. As one biblical commentary says, this word automatos in Greek is used of things that happen without visible cause. And it suggests that God's power stands behind the growth. Now, anyone who has uh, tried to grow anything, whether it be a small house plant or acres and acres and acres of corn, right? I live in Iowa and there's corn everywhere like everywhere. Um, and and it's cool actually because, because there's corn everywhere, you kind of get a constant reminder driving around Iowa of, of, of the earth bringing forth fruit and the mystery of the earth bringing forth fruit because you see um, farmers in, um, in their, their tractors, in their uh, equipment, um, planting, fertilizing, um, eventually they're going to be harvesting, right? And yet at the same time, there is an implicit sense in which the fruit is being brought forth automatos, automatically, by an invisible cause, by a cause that is not visible. And so anybody that is trying to tend something that grows and has an openness to uh, the transcendent, I suppose I should say, can understand the mystery behind this. I say has an openness to the transcendent because I want to grant that for many of us, the mystery of a plant bringing forth life is in part due to a certain level of ignorance, right? Um, you know, uh, a scientist who is very familiar with plant biology can explain to us um, in great detail what is actually going on under the surface and what is actually going on within the plant so that some of the mystery is taken away. And that's not necessarily bad. However, at the end of the day, someone who is open to the transcendent is willing, should they encounter the questioning of like a five-year-old, right? What if, what, how do five-year-olds ask questions? What is that? And it's explained, the answer is given. And they say, Why? And an answer is given and they say, why? And an answer is given and they say, why? And typically, if you have these conversations with kids, eventually you come to a point where you can't actually explain any further. So if a child was to encounter a plant and say, um, daddy, where does the apple come from? And let's even say this guy is a, you know, a plant expert a scientist who can get into the nitty gritty. He's going to do explaining. He's going to explain, you know, that it came from a blossom and then that blossom came from the branch and the branch came from the roots and on and on and on and on. But eventually it's going to be like, but where did that come from? 
and one who is open to the transcendent will have to answer, to use philosophy, it came from the first cause. Because life cannot come of its own accord. It can't just like flower up. It has to come from something before. We logically understand this. And so when you go back and back and back and back and back and back and back, at some point, the only logical, plausible, rational answer for how something came to be is an eternal being who has always existed. And so at the end of the day, even with the the beautiful explanation of science that, um, that fills in some of the mystery of say, for example, how, you know, how an, a tree produces fruit, how a tree produces an apple, for example, even with that, that beautiful scientific explanation at the end of the day, the scientist will have to grant that God caused it. And if that is true of the natural world, then how much more true is it of the supernatural world? Um, how much more is it true of the spiritual world, right? And sometimes even things that look dead perhaps still contain a potential for life. There's so many ways that we can we can use this analogy to um, to have respect for God and his immense patience with us and then imitate that patience in our relationship with other people. Um, God is so patient with us when it comes to our spiritual growth. But when we have people in our lives, especially people that we love, we become really impatient with their lack of spiritual growth frequently or we'll write them off completely. As I'm recording this, I'm looking at um, my windowsill, which has four plants on them that look basically dead. And they've been on my windowsill for several months. And um, any other person would have thrown them away. But um, they're actually, they're on my windowsill, but they're mostly being, okay, they're pretty much 100% being taken care of by um, my roommate. Shout out. I don't want I don't want to take credit where I I have no room to take credit. Um and she has been very patient with these plants. Like they literally look dead. But just the other day she was like, "Katie, look. There's a leaf." And so I'm looking at one of these one of these plants right now that has a little tiny leaf coming off of it. Now these plants are pretty special plants, which is uh, why I still have them, even though they look ridiculous. They're like twigs that look dead. If they were any other plant, I probably would have thrown them away, which goes to show like how much I care about particular plants and how patient we're willing to be with particular plants. And how much we want to, we want to almost like will 
life to come forth from them. But that's the interesting thing. You can't really will life to come forth from them. All that you can do is keep watering them and keep giving them sunlight, perhaps fertilizing them periodically and just really, really hoping that there is still life in that little twig that looks dead. And evidently in one of the four, there is still life in a little twig that looks dead. And this, this analogy is just so perfect for the spiritual life. And not only for the spiritual life of the individual, but the spiritual life of the church, right? So the earth produces fruit of itself, automatas, of its own accord. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Let's dive into the Greek again here. Here the RSV says he puts in the sickle. Really, if you translated it a little more literally, you would say when the grain is ripe, he sends in the sickle. Why do I say that? Because the Greek word is apostello, from which we get the word apostle. And perhaps you know what the root of the word apostle means. It means sent. So when the grain is ripe, he apostellos the sickle. He sends in the sickle because the harvest has come. This is really profound, right? Because if we're following our Lord and his comparison and the meaning of his parable, we know that he's talking, um, he's using natural ideas and imagery to talk about spiritual ideas and imagery and spiritual life. And so when the grain is ripe, he's going to send in apostello to gather in. So for example, just to like drive this idea home, we can look to other places in Mark where we get this, um, this Greek word apostello. Mark chapter three, verse 14. And he appointed 12 to be with him and to be sent to be apostello out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Mark chapter six, verse seven. And he called to him the 12 and began to apostello them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Okay. So this Greek word is loaded And though, you know, there's a sense in which it's just a fitting word to use for our Lord to describe what he's trying to describe. But at the same time, because it is so loaded and so related to this idea of being sent out as apostles, and is it not the 12 who are going to begin to gather in the harvest? We see here then this link, this this deep link between spiritual life and, and the missionary activity of the church. And the, the missionary spirit of the 12 and, and those of us who are united to the successors of the 12, right? In bringing forth the harvest. Not to mention that harvest in the scriptures always has this, uh, this historical kind of um, relationship to the idea of last judgment, So Jesus himself, as well as the Old Testament writers will frequently use 
this image of harvest to describe the last judgment and the ingathering. Now, the final judgment is going to take place at the end of time, but nonetheless, we have to grant that um, technically speaking, the time in which we find ourselves is the quote unquote end times, all right? So we had the time leading up to the coming of Christ. We had the time of Christ um, being with us on earth. And then once he ascended into heaven, the period in the church called the end times began. Now, does that mean Jesus is going to come tomorrow? Maybe, but maybe not. When I say we're in the end times, I'm not speaking. I mean, I am speaking apocalyptically, but I'm but, but what I'm saying is the church has been telling us we are in the end times since Jesus ascended into heaven. So the last 2000 years have been the end times and there could be another 2000 years or our Lord could come next week. And so there's a sense in which, yes, the harvest is now coming to fruition and it is now the time to ingather what is ripe. And that's what the role of the church is. That's what it means for certain people in the in the church to be uh, apostello, to be sent, to be apostles, so that they can gather in the harvest. Um, really, really fascinating ideas going on here. So we have the idea of, of conversion, the mysterious nature of conversion. The idea of ingathering, this con- this 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 compare comparison and con- contrasting with activity as well as inactivity, and in some, this idea that life is the work of God, both natural life and spiritual life. They are the work of God. Let's continue on in our study to verse thirty in our second parable, which Mark offers us here in our gospel. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Again, one of the most Um, kind of famous images that our Lord brings in with his parables, the parable of the mustard seed, right? Um, There's also, just like with the use of the term apostello in our first parable, there's some allusions here um, that take our, our meaning even deeper, right? So on the surface alone, this parable is really profound. And, and this is not surprising because we're talking about Jesus preaching here, right? But but also because this is kind of the idea of parables in general, that they have this, this profound sort of surface meaning, but then you can also go deeper with them. So what's the profound surface meaning? Well, we have a little seed that grows into something really large. And that is compared to the kingdom of God. So um, something that is small, the kingdom of God is going to grow into something exponentially larger than that seed, right? But again, um, there's deeper meaning going on here, but let's let's not get too much ahead of ourselves. So when we opened up with this first parable, I said, we have to keep in mind that um, 
a good way to translate and to think of what Jesus is doing here is to know that he's not just comparing the kingdom of God to one particular person or object first mentioned, but he's comparing it to the whole situation. And he um, brings up this idea again, when he introduces a second parable with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? In fact, this introduction to our second parable parallels common introductions in rabbinic parables. So first of all, Jesus was not the only person to use parables. This is a common form of teaching in rabbinic Judaism. So Judaism in which the rabbis would teach, right? And so um, Jesus is is pulling in these, these commonly used and uh, understood kind of means of speaking. Uh, So the rabbis often would begin their parables by saying, to what is the matter like? And then again, we get this kind of ellipses, dot, 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 and then the explanation. So Jesus says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? And then he goes on to give us this beautiful image, a grain of mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, that last little clause there, so that the birds of the air can make nests in his shade, immediately makes connections to two or three places in the Old Testament which are really, really profound. In other words, Jesus is is throwing out like a subtle allusion to these sections in the Old Testament that take the surface meaning, which is already really profound, and just plunge it like 30 feet even deeper. And so what Old Testament sections am I talking about? We can turn, for example, to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 through 24 Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it upon a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, it may, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar and under it will dwell all kinds of beasts. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Okay. So the Lord is prophesying through the prophet Ezekiel that he will bring forth this great tree. He will plant it on a mountaintop in Israel and under it will dwell all kinds of beasts in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. All right. Let's, let's, um, before we, you know, draw the illusions between this section and our New Testament reading, let's continue though, because there's more, there's more. Um, allusions that Jesus is drawing here implicitly to the Old Testament. So we can turn to a later section of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 31, 
Uh, we'll start at verse two. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in greatness? Behold, I will liken you to a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and forest shade and of great height its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its river flow round the place of its planting, sending forth its stream to all trees of the forest. So it towered high above all the trees of the forest. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the air made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field brought forth their young. Again, that little, that little phrase, that little clause um, introduces like a, a, a whole section of, of biblical allusions. Lastly, Daniel. So we looked at two sections of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. Let's turn down to the, the prophet Daniel. This is uh, from Daniel chapter four, verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were fair and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the air dwelt in its branches and all flesh were fed from it. Now, interestingly enough, in this last section, this is um, a vision given to Nebuchadnezzar, who is the, um, the, the, the foreign king ruling over the Israelites, the Jewish people who are in exile. Daniel, many people don't realize this, but Daniel was in exile. Um, for, for his life. And when he wrote this book, where we get his prophecies from. Um, and so what we actually get here are an image of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But if we continue reading on in the prophecy, uh, we, we hear uh, God's describing that he's going to hew down the tree and cut off its branches. That's a direct quote continuing on at verse 14. Um, he cried aloud and said thus, hew down the tree and cut off its branches. This is the, the quote unquote holy one speaking. Um, the watcher, which is sometimes considered an angel. Hew down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Okay, so we have this image of this great tree in which um, beasts are going to rest under its shade and birds are going to nest in its branches. But God is going to um, command that it be cut down, yet he wants the stump to be left. Now, before we get into specific details, I want to outline that among many, many illusions and ideas that uh, this connection draws for us, that Jesus draws when he brings in this language of birds of the air making nests in its shade, we have allusions to kingdom. Okay, this is very obvious reading through the two sections from Ezekiel and this prophecy from Daniel, right? The tree, the image of the tree 
not just because our Lord compares it in the New Testament, but looking at the Old Testament, the image of the tree frequently is an image of a kingdom. And this is not just exclusive necessarily to the Old Testament. For example, um, at least one archaeological um, uh, artifact and inscription has been unearthed in which um, the Babylonian Empire is compared to a great tree, okay? So this seems to be an idea floating around ancient Near Eastern culture of great kingdoms being compared to trees here. Now, what's interesting is um, these some of these trees are, are uh, secular kingdoms. But what Jesus is saying and even the Old Testament prophecies are alluding to is that at some point, these secular kingdoms are going to be hewn down and a once for all kingdom is going to be established. This is, this is the essence of the idea from our first uh, look at Ezekiel 17. This great tree that's going to be planted on a height in Israel. And so, what our Lord is going to do, or he's saying he's going to do, is that the, the kingdom of God is going to be also like a great tree. And it's going to be so great that it's, uh, that the secular trees, the secular kingdoms cannot compare. And we even get a sense in which um, birds may leave other trees, if you will, and come to nest in this one great tree. Now, interestingly enough, and I'm kind of getting into the other illusions here. So we have allusion to kingdom, right? But we also have, we have uh, an implicit allusion to Gentiles, okay? Because um, the scriptures or at least extra biblical tradition. So for example, we can look to the uh, first book of Enoch, which is an extra biblical book. Um, the Gentiles are sometimes referred to as birds. They're sometimes seen as these birds that will indeed come from other trees, from other kingdoms and make their nest in the true kingdom, in the true tree. And we see how this makes so much sense because if God is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about spiritual growth. He's talking about apostello being sent out and in gathering, then of course, this is going to imply the Gentiles coming, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles coming to rest in the branches of the tree. There's also um, an allusion here uh, to the Messiah. And this is um, most obvious in our, our reading from Daniel. So, God commands that this tree be hewn down, but he also says, leave, leave the stump and bind it with a band of iron and bronze. Now in the Ignatius Catholic study Bible, the authors make this argument commenting on Daniel 4.15. They say, quote, bands were tightened around the top of a tree stump to prevent the exposed wood from cracking and splitting open. In the symbolism of the dream, this will enable the stump to sprout and grow again. So this, the tree is, is, uh, is hewn down, is cut down, 
but the, the stump is left and a band is tied around it. So there's a sense in which the tree is cut down, but the stump, oh, God wants to preserve the stump. And uh, that's the reason for this band. And the stump is to be preserved so that maybe something can sprout from it. And in the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible commentary on Daniel 4.15, they point you to Isaiah 11.1. Now, what is Isaiah 11.1? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. So the the manner in which um, this idea of tree, of stump, of shoot is a messianic idea. This is also really interesting when we also turn back to our first parable. The earth produces of itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Okay, so this idea of of sprouting the seed should sprout and grow. He knows not how. And so there's a manner in which we see the image of a sprout or a branch coming forth from a stump being a clear image of the Messiah, especially in light of Isaiah 11, one, but our Lord also seems to be comparing his followers, the members of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God itself to this sprout, this branch. And this makes total sense in light of the theology that we have on the church, right? A theology that um, St. Paul very clearly gives us. And what is this theology of the church that I'm talking about? It's a theology of the church in which Jesus radically associates himself with his church and the members of his church. And then in turn, the opposite ought to be true as well, which is that the church and the members of the church radically associate themselves with Christ. And so the sprout coming forth from the stump, the branch coming forth from the stump is not only Christ himself, the Messiah, but it is the members of his kingdom, the church, the church itself, right? And again, this is a theology that Paul Um, elucidates for us in our writings. And some scholars will actually argue that this is the heart of Paul's theology. And it actually came from his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. What did Jesus say to Paul at the moment of his conversion? He said, why are you persecuting me? Was Paul persecuting Jesus? No, Jesus was ascended into heaven at this point. But what the implication is, is that Jesus radically associates himself with his followers and with the church. And this resonated with Paul and always stayed with him. And so we see that in in our parable here as well. There's another fascinating connection between um, Christ and his, his work and, and us. Okay. So, um, when we hear that the, uh, the birds of the air come and make their nests in the shade of this great tree, this great mustard bush, um, the Greek word that we get for that, that translates, um, make nests is kataskenun. And this is the same Greek verb that we get at John 
chapter one, uh, verse 14. John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the word we get here for dwelt among us is skaneo, skaneo. And it's related to this kataskanun. And it means pitched his tent. And so there's this beautiful implicit idea in which Jesus first comes and pitches his tent so that eventually the rest of the world will come to him and pitch their tent. I'll say that again. Our Lord comes first and pitches his tent among us so that eventually the rest of the world will come and pitch their tent with him. This is the idea here. And again, it kind of ratifies this notion of Christ radically associating himself with us so that we will then radically associate ourselves with him. Let's talk about the the kind of heart, if you will, of this second parable, the idea of the mustard seed, right? There's a So there's an interesting way in which we see the clear parallels that our Lord is drawing with these Old Testament images in Ezekiel and Daniel of this great tree. And yet at the same time, like sometimes the, the tree is compared to like a cedar, right? But Jesus doesn't use the specific image of the cedar. He uses a mustard seed. Now, again, we have the kind of on the surface meaning, which is profound. And then the depths of the meaning that, that Christ gives to this this idea. So it's profound that a tiny little seed and a mustard seed is indeed quite small, should grow into a fairly large bush. So a mustard, a mustard bush was um, prevalent along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus's um, audience would have probably been pretty familiar with the mustard bush. Um, it could grow uh, between two to six feet high. So we're not talking about a bush that's, you know, humongous. Like it's not really comparable to a cedar tree. And yet at the same time, when you look at the size of the mustard seed and a bush two to six feet that comes from it, it is a little profound. And we can see the on the surface meaning and the profundity that it has by itself on its own. But there's, um, there's kind of another interesting aspect to Jesus using the image of the mustard seed and to fully um, understand the profundity here, the deeper profundity, we can turn to Pliny and Pliny has a book called Natural History and he talks about the natural world from the ancient perspective. And Pliny tells us that the mustard plant, the mustard bush was a hardy plant that tends to germinate quickly and to take over a garden. So the mustard bush tended to germinate quickly and take over a garden. And one Bible scholar commenting on this explanation from Pliny says, quote, the point is that the kingdom is both hardy and intrusive. The kingdom is both hardy and intrusive. And is this not true? Is this not true? We, it reminds me of that famous quote from, I think it was Tertullian, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
So we have a hardy church for sure in that even a church so persecuted as the Christian church could continue to exist. But not only did it continue to exist, but it actually thrived in that environment to the point where it became intrusive. So that the Roman Empire, who was uh, most opposed to Christianity in some ways, embraces Christianity in just a few hundred years after the death of Christ. So the church indeed is both hardy and intrusive, and both of those in the best sense possible. One thing that we can ask ourselves, are we as individual followers of our Lord, are we hardy and intrusive? Now, I'm not, you know, suggesting that you all of a sudden become really obnoxious with the people in your life who are not Catholic or not Christian. And you like start sending them like tons of YouTube videos and books and uh, podcasts and just be obnoxious about it. By no means. But we should be subtly intrusive. And is that not the most dangerous sort of intrusiveness? And I mean this in the best way possible, right? But uh, a plant that is obviously intrusive is going to be easier to root up, but a plant that is subtly intrusive is going to be harder to root up. And so we we ought to be subtly intrusive and we ought to be hardy people. We ought to take after our Lord who was as hardy as a man could be. And he was tenacious in his love for us and in his love for the father. And how, what was, what is a way that we express this? I would argue that Jesus uh, gives us a suggestion for how we would express this hardiness. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately To his own disciples, he explained everything. And what does that that imply for us? That we ought to hear what he speaks to us. With many such parables, he he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Other times when our Lord speaks parables, he says, um, he who has ears ought to hear. Well, we have ears, but do we hear? And what, what does it mean to hear? The Greek word for hear is akuo. And the word, the Greek word obedience has the same root as akuo, to hear. And so to hear the Lord who is trying his best to speak to us in a way that will move us to hear our Lord, to heed his parables means to be obedient to him. With many such parables, he spoke to them as they were able to hear it. We can ask ourselves and and I'll end on this. Why did our Lord speak in parables? 
there's many, there's many answers you can give to this question and there's not necessarily a right answer. You know, we could say that Solomon spoke in parables, which he did. And so our Lord was trying to kind of imitate that, that, uh, that idea of being a new Solomon. Uh, some will argue that Jesus spoke in parables for his own safety. Parables are how you speak truth to power, right? So for example, we can look to the Old Testament to the prophet Nathan when he comes to accuse David of his sin. Does he outright accuse him? No, he speaks in parables. And this kind of lets down the guard of, of King David so that Nathan is able to speak truth to power. But there's also a sense in which our Lord speaks in the subtle space of parables in order to respect our freedom. Our Lord speaks in the subtle space of parables in order to respect our freedom. If our Lord, um, if our Lord just revealed everything to us in a flash or screamed out the truth, if you could possibly imagine that, um, there is a sense in which one could argue that our freedom would be compromised. Our freedom is more easily compromised than we realize. So, you know, somebody puts a get a gun to my head and, and I do what they tell me. I am not free in that moment. And Jesus knows this and he respects our freedom so much and he desires love freely from us that he almost in some ways veils himself. And yet, even in veiling himself, should we have ears to hear him, he is, he is unbelievably attractive, magnetically attractive. So we need to open the ears of our heart to look to Christ, to see how he is speaking to us in the beauty of these parables and to be open to the conviction that he is offering us and the challenge that he is offering us, that we might indeed imitate him and imitate the church, especially the early church, and being like that great shrub in which all the birds of the air can nest and find shade. We ought to be hardy and intrusive. And we ask... Um, she who was the most perfect imitator of our Lord, our Blessed Mother, to intercede for us that we might have the grace to perfectly imitate him as well.